Here we go, folks. Welcome to the No Picks After Dark podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante. I'm so excited you guys are here today. Thank you guys for coming out on this lovely evening. I appreciate you guys. Give you guys a round of applause. Come on. Come on. We got to liven this up a little bit. Here we go. So if you've never been to one of these shows, this is, uh, you know, we do a live, try and get people back out in the world again. And I'm so excited to have my guest on. This guest has been on before. She has, I'm going to tell you, one of the top five highest rating podcasts on my show for three years. Oh. Top five podcasts. Nice. So people are really, really interested. We did a live show at Zeke's Coffee before, and we want to do something a little bit different. Get her out in the public. People can see her. My videographer's here. A couple of people who never don't even know what controllers are. So <laughs> without further ado, Ms. Brooke Lehrman, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on this beautiful, beautiful spring evening in Baltimore. Thank you so much for coming out. I know you're busy. You're running around. I mean, we've rescheduled 15 times. I'm like, you know what? We're going to make this happen. Not tonight. just because of me. Not just because of no, me. No, <laughs> not because of you. Because if you guys don't know, we changed the date for election year into yeah. July. So we moved. So we had to move it around and make things happen. But guess what? We're going to make it happen this evening. It's great. So, all right, Ms. Brooke. What the hell is a controller? Because that's the million dollar question. Like, I have friends who are like, we don't know what a controller does. I don't know what we're going to listen to. How do you spell it? How do you even spell it? How do you pronounce it? What yeah. does this person do? So let's give a one-on-one education. What's, what does a controller do? Well, thank you so much. First, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on again for an encore show. It's great to be back. Um, it's great to be here at Union. Uh, always a wonderful place. And thrilling. Really excited to be here live. So thank you. Um, so... What on earth is a comptroller? I am running to be the next state comptroller, which I am really excited about. Um, and when I first decided to do this, a few of my friends looked at me and said, you know, we believe in you, Brooke, you're gonna be great. Please, can you tell us what a comptroller is? And I said, sure, and you know what? Because I know I'm gonna get that question a lot, I'm just gonna go ahead and make a little cartoon about it too. So one of the first things I did was I put a little cartoon up on my website that's, what does a comptroller do anyway? And it's there now. So you can always go check it out at brooklearman.com. But look, the comptroller is a huge role in Maryland, and so I think it's really important that we all sort of empower ourselves with this information to know. And so I always, in my stump speeches, explain what it is so that people know who our government officials are. So three things to keep in mind about the comptroller's office. And this is both like what it is and what it can be, right? Number one, the comptroller is one of only three independently elected statewide offices that we have in Maryland. A lot of other states have way more than three, but we just have three. We have the governor, the attorney general, and the comptroller. And the comptroller really acts as the elected CFO of the state, right? But it has this statewide bully pulpit that's a really important place to talk about the economic challenges that are facing our state, right? The disparities that were really, um, you know, put on display and, and also really multiplied during the pandemic. Like, the racial wealth divide in our state, um, the economic challenge of climate change, ensuring we have enough money to fund our public schools, right? These are how we grow economic prosperity in an equitable and inclusive way in the state, like big economic issues. We need a state comptroller who will talk about those issues, but also bring people together, right, to help, challenge, to help solve some of those challenges. So number two, the comptroller 
is really at the seat of holding the power of the purse in the state of Maryland um, because of the boards that it sits on. Um, two boards I always mention are one, the State Retirement and Pension Board, and two, the Board of Public Works. So I saw a nod, which means somebody knows about the State Retirement and Pension Board, and maybe because they're a state employee <laughs> and they know their pension is coming someday. Um, so the State Retirement and Pension Board oversees about $70 billion in assets and investments for 415,000 state retirees. A huge responsibility. Now, I actually chair the Joint Committee on Pensions right now, and over the past eight years, I've worked really hard to make sure that our pension is well-funded and that we're reducing the amount of fees that we pay to outside investment management companies so that money's there for our retirees. But there's more that we can do, and I'm excited to do that. Um, and then the Board of Public Works. So this is like the most important board that almost nobody in the state has ever heard of mm. because it really does hold the power of the purse in the state of Maryland. And there is no other board like it in all of state government. We are unique in Maryland. The Board of Public Works, the BPW for short, is three people, the governor, the treasurer, and the comptroller. And those three people are responsible for approving or denying every major contract that the state enters into, whether that's buying COVID test kits, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, buying a new bus fleet, an EV bus fleet, whether it's paying for school construction, um, even if it is paying wrongfully convicted individuals who have been found innocent and the state is then paying them. These are a huge number of different kinds of payments that the state makes, right? And that all has to go through the Board of Public Works. So there is so much that I have to say about the BPW. I'm gonna wait till a little bit later, but just that power, making sure that we get best value for our dollars and that our dollars are staying local, building up our MBEs, our black-owned businesses, women and veteran-owned businesses, making sure our dollars are here supporting our e economy is so essential. So third and final role of the comptroller, I am sorry to remind all of you, uh, please don't boo me off the stage that I'm running to be your next tax collector. <laughs> um, I know, um, but it has to be said, someone's got to do it. Um, so, but you know, tax administration is just so essential to get right, right? Because we've got to make sure that even the biggest corporations out there, that they're paying their fair share, right? We've got to make sure that people who are depending on the earned income tax credit, that they know how to claim it, right? Thousands of dollars for working families. So we've got to modernize the system, make it easier to use. So that's it. I will say, at the end of the day, the comptroller's office is really the first office in our government that sees the numbers that tell the stories of how our families, our communities, and our small businesses are doing. And I'm really excited to be a comptroller that makes sure that those numbers look good for all of us. That's my goal. Okay, I, I love it, I love it, I love it. I'm glad that hope everybody understood that and I can't wait for the audience to listen to this because I know a little bit about BPW, but that's a whole different story for a different day. <laughs> so when she said that, my ears perked up really quickly. Um, but why leave, you're a state delegate, why would you want to leave and be a controller? Like you are in charge of one of the, the coolest areas in the city around the harbor, you know, second, second coolest part. I'm a Northeast, <laughs> I'm a Northeast Baltimore guy, so I gotta give the guy, Corey McCray and the team a shout out. But you are around the harbor, every little Italy, Federal Hill, Canton. Why would you want to leave that gig for Baltimore? And you're empowering the people of Baltimore, helping Baltimore City to be, be a controller. Like, why would you want to do that? You know, it's a great question, and, and the answer is this. This is such an important office, and I really believe 
that Maryland has to rise to meet this moment, right? We have come through incredible challenges during the pandemic um, and a really important racial reckoning, and we have incredible opportunity with all of the federal money that's coming in because of the Infrastructure Act that was passed federally. So this is the moment for us. It's a moment for Baltimore, it's a moment for Maryland, and we have to seize it. And and I believe that based on my work, you know, as a civil rights attorney and working on the Appropriations Committee, really digging in in my neighborhoods in Baltimore and, and also just working around the state with legislators from around the state, I believe that I can bring people together and, you know, use the work, my work ethic to really help us seize this moment and do better for people around the state. I like it. So why is it so important to have a controller from Baltimore? Because <laughs> a lot of people asked me, they were like, we want to know where she stands with that because Baltimore needs a lot of love. And right now, presently, the Comptroller is not from Baltimore. He's from, uh, was it Montgomery County? Mm -hmm. So we don't really feel the love that much. But why is it very important that somebody from Baltimore become the Comptroller? Well, sure, you know, I think it's really important for, for all of our you know, different regions of the state to have people in different offices. But look, Baltimore is losing representation, right? We're losing population, so we're losing representation in the State Senate and State House which makes it all the more important that we have some statewide offices who understand, you know, who know the difference between Pigtown and Highland Town, right? Who, who know some shortcuts through the city, that, that know sort of the state of the potholes on our streets and the state of the parks and, you know, where the nude slides need to. I mean, I think it's just important, but, you know, and I'm really excited. Look, I'm, I, I was raised in Montgomery County. Um, I chose Baltimore. I like to say I'm not from here, but I got here as fast as I could. Um, but, uh, but, you know, there's, it also, I believe strongly that Maryland will never be a truly great state until Baltimore City reaches its full potential. Um, and I can say that, you know, and I think people around the state would believe that because people want Baltimore to reach its full potential, to be on its own and to be sort of the shining gem of a city that we all think and I believe it can be. Um, and so having somebody that is here to, you know, not just always carry a stick, but to like really be a partner is important, right? How we spend our money in the government matters. And we need to both hold Baltimore accountable, but also be a partner and an advocate and a friend. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited to do that for the region um, and of course for areas all around the state and excited to, though, the, to go to bed every night in Baltimore. I like it, I like it. So AAA, AAA bond rating. Okay. Yes. Only 13 states have that AAA bond rating. Yep. Could you elaborate a little bit about that and how we can keep on pace with having that AAA bond rating? Because we're on the few, only 13 states in America, and I think the U.S. have that. Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's not one I get asked a lot, actually, but hey. it's a big deal. It's a big deal because what it means is that we can borrow money more cheaply, right? We can, our capital budget, so Maryland has two budgets every year, an operating budget and a capital budget. Um, and when we are going to the bonding authorities and we're selling bonds to, um, to pay for capital projects, whether that's you know, building new schools or building new roads or uh, you know, any sort of big capital um, dollar projects, parks, anything, um, all of the bond bills that we do supporting our public, you know, our institutions, our museums around the city and all around the whole state, our arts institutions and more. Having that AAA bond rating means that we can borrow more money because we're paying less. Um, and it's, so it's essential that we keep that AAA bond rating. The 
part of the way that we do that in Maryland is actually by having a Board of Public Works. Because even if uh, we pass a budget, we have to pass a balanced budget every year, this, the General Assembly and the Governor, but if something happens in the middle of the year when the General Assembly is not in session, the Board of Public Works is empowered to sort of, to actually to cut from the budget to help make sure that it stays balanced. And they did that during the pandemic. I would argue it during the pandemic, they did it in a way that wasn't sometimes way too much, and they should have been uh, a little more of a scalpel instead of a hatchet. But, um, but so maintaining that AAA bond rating is absolutely essential. One of the ways that we have to think through keeping that AAA bond rating is thinking about the effect of climate change um, on our economy. Because we are really the fourth most vulnerable state to climate change because of rising waters, because of urban heat island effect, and more. Um, we're going to have more and more flooding, and that is going to impact the amount of capital that we need to spend maintaining our public structures, right? Like having a fire station or something that's in a floodplain already, we're going to have to pay to build a new one. So there's a lot of work to be done to make sure we maintain that AAA bond rating, and some of it has to do with ensuring the climate resilience of our state and our state dollars. Thank, thank you. I know a lot of people probably don't know about it, but I know my, my listeners were wondering about that. Um, so, procurement. <laughs> we had a little issue this year about procurement. Um, a little issue in the state house. You probably need to touch a little bit about this. We bought a whole bunch of test kits that didn't work. Yeah. And it didn't go through the procurement process correctly. It did not. And we lost, the state of Maryland lost a lot of money from that it purchase. Did. Can you elaborate on that, how the controller could stop that process from happening? Because I know it was an emergency situation to get these test kits, but the state of Maryland lost a lot of money for test kits that are sitting in a airport hangar right now. Yeah, no, it was an incredibly, yeah. Can we elaborate a little bit? It was, so uh, you might all remember um, Governor Hogan's uh, press conference on the tarmac at BWI when he brought in the, these test kits um, from Korea. And um, it turned out, look at all that, that the test kits, not only did they not work, but he had never signed a contract for them. And so there was no way that we could go back to the company and say, hey, these test kits don't work. We'd either like our money back or we'd like new and updated test kits that actually work. Um, it was very frustrating and, and, and reckless. Right. Um, so one of the things that the legislature did after, you know, that happened during a, a state of emergency, right, right? right? And so the Board of Public Works during the state of emergency actually loses some of its powers and more power is given to the governor okay. because things have to happen really quickly. Um, but there still needs to be transparency around it, right? right? So the year after the pandemic, so I guess it was, or not, we were still in the pandemic, but it was the year after those purchases, so it was 2021, the General Assembly stepped in and said, okay, look, it's really important that the governor have power during a state of emergency to do what needs to be done to keep the state safe. At the same time, there needs to be some transparency and accountability. You can't just show up on a tarmac and say, I just spent millions of dollars without giving anybody any heads up about how you're spending money. So I actually passed a bill um, that I authored and was passed uh, with bipartisan support requiring transparency on spending dollars, even during a state of emergency, to make sure that doesn't happen again. And that's very important with procurement, because this is a procurement yeah. there's nobody involved with that, totally. and that falls under the controller. It, yep, it all comes to the Board of Public Works, okay. absolutely. And that's, yep. okay, we're talking, people talk about the Board of Public Works. People talk about, we gotta, we gotta talk about it now. Because, yeah. So I will give a little, well, I don't ever talk about this on my on the podcast, but I, what I do for work every day, um, we deal with the Board of Public Works. 
So I'll always see the controller <laughs> and the governor and one more person. The oh, treasurer. The treasurer, yes, the treasurer. And she just retired this past year, treasurer. Now we have a new one. Now we have a new one. Derek Davis. Yes, yeah, I haven't been having pain yeah. touch in a while. All men now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that's I really little, like, that's a little, no shade on Derek. I yeah, really like our new treasurer. Yes, yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. So, and they pass, again, they, they really control the money and what's going to happen, what's not going to happen. So, you be on that board, and it's a two to one vote. Whoever the vote, that's why they had three people on there, correct? So, I think it's very important that we have new and fresh eyes in there because the same old, same old, it's working, but I mm -hmm. think we could do a lot better. Yep. What would you want to say about the Board of Public Works? Sure. If you were lucky. Yeah, no, there is a lot that I think we need to do with the Board of Public Works. Um, and so the Board of Public Works, I'm just going to call it the BPW because okay, that's a mouthful, yeah. you know. Yeah, BPT, yeah. Um, so if you follow me on social media, you'll see every time there's a BPW meeting, I post a social media graphic saying what, like giving a synopsis of what the BPW has done just to bring a little more transparency. Actually, when I first got elected, there weren't even, we didn't even require agendas beforehand. So mm. you had no idea what the BPW was about to vote on, spending millions of dollars and there was no heads up. So we passed legislation requiring that the BPW meetings be live streamed and that they send out their agenda ahead of time so we could have some idea what they were actually gonna spend money on and what they were gonna vote on. Um, so I believe that our procurement, how we spend our dollars, has to be of the utmost, I mean, it is the thing that we have to focus on. Um, so one of the things that I wanna talk about is just the, how we get best value for our dollars. Um, that is all about getting a double bottom line, right? All these federal dollars that are coming in to the state of Maryland over the next few years, just an example, we're gonna build a new school, great. Really important that we build new schools. You know, I was actually just at a new, one of the new schools we built in my district earlier today. They're beautiful, our kids need them. It's not enough to just build a new school, right? You've got to look at who is building that school. Who's the landscape architect? Who's the architect? Who's the construction company, right? You've got to have a black-owned woman architecture firm and a veteran-owned construction company with union labor, and it's all got to be based in Maryland, right? So we're actually creating jobs in Maryland, and the wealth is staying in Maryland and building up our own economy. And then I would also say you've got to, you can go an even step further and say, as we're building this new school, let's think about it for 50 years, not just for 15. Let's say, let's make sure it's not in a floodplain, right? Let's make sure that it's gonna be net zero. Let's put solar panels on top if we can. So our kids, you know, 40 years from now, aren't like, hey guys, remember when you had all that money and you didn't do a good job thinking forward about how to mm -hmm. spend it? Shame on you, right? Mm -hmm. We can do better. And so the comptroller's office has to be central to making that happen. And I'm, that is one of my biggest focuses, is making sure that we open up the procurement process much more than it is. We make it easier for small businesses, for MBEs to apply, to join, and, and be a part of our state procurement office, process, that we always look at best value. We're not waiving MBE requirements. And that there's so many, there are other things we can do. If it's a small business, they sometimes can't wait for how long it takes the state to pay them. We should create a, you know, a loan fund, a zero interest loan fund with banks. So as soon as you qualify for a contract, then a bank can say, hey, yep, we'll give you a zero interest loan because it's backed by the state. 
and then you can use this money to keep your payroll going while you're waiting for the state to pay you, right? There's all these sorts of things that we can do to make procurement better for small businesses. Um, and I'm really excited to, to, to bring that um, to the comptroller's office. Oh, you just touched on what I was about to talk about. You must, you must <laughs> be my mind. So you talk about MBEs, uh, Minority Business Enterprise. Enterprise, yep. So um, that, we want to make sure that's fair. Yep. How can we make that sure it's fair? Because there's a lot of minority businesses don't get, they don't understand how the system works. Um, they don't know how it works. They don't, yeah. they don't ha they're not educated. They're not given the same opportunity as maybe another white business who knows mm. what's going on, how to jump through loopholes, just like you said. Yep. You talked about there could be some loans where, hey, we're working with the state. We got to pay, but we don't have money. How do we keep afloat? Um, how can we make that fair? How can we really make that a fair thing where we can do it? They can apply for those things online. Yep. Make sure that's easy. Dumb it down so it's easy. What do you mean? What are some of your thoughts? On that. Yeah, no, it's really essential. And it's essential not just to make sure that we're tackling the racial wealth divide in the state and helping some of the you know, black owned business owners build generational wealth throughout right. the years, because that is an essential component of building wealth is business ownership. But it's also essential for the state, right? Because if these businesses aren't applying for state procurement dollars, then, and we're just getting sort of the same old people applying all the time, then we as taxpayers we're probably not getting the best deal, right? We might not have the best people doing the job. So it's really important for a number of reasons. Um, so first, you know, there has to be a place where the buck stops, right? And it's got to stop at the Board of Public Works, and that just has to be an end to MBE waivers, right? Often what happens is an agency will bring a contract to the Board of Public Works, say, oh, sorry, like, we couldn't find an MBE, so can you give us a waiver? Mm. And it happens, and that's, it's just got to stop, right? Because when there's pressure on the agencies then to know that they're not going to get a waiver, then guess what? They got to go do the work, right? Okay. And they got to do... The, the comptroller's office, though, has to be essential to, I believe, reaching out to people and businesses, um, black-owned businesses, immigrant-owned businesses, veteran-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, really around the state of Maryland. So the comptroller, I, I swear I'm not making this up, the comptroller has 12 field offices all over the state of Maryland. Oh, I'm going to ask. Yeah. I've never seen a comptroller. Oh, no, I swear. <laughs> they exist. Um, uh, and it's sort of like the MVA, but no lines, right? Okay, okay. <laughs> um, so I am excited for these field offices to really become economic hubs in their community, right? If it's the one in Upper Marlboro, like reaching out to the Prince George's County Chamber of Commerce, right? Reaching out to fraternities, sororities, church groups, talking about here's how you get involved in the procurement process. Here's how you can find online the different contracts. Oh, you need help, you know, incorporating. We can show you how to do that. On, you know, these offices need to go out into the community, right? It, the comptroller's office has to be present and proactive with people around the states. Um, I like to joke that, you know, if I'm elected four years from now when I'm running for re-election, I don't want to have to tell people what the comptroller does because I want them to know because we've done such a good job at getting out into communities around the state, right? Um, so essential that the comptroller go out and bring businesses in, reach out to black-owned businesses and more, and then work with the agencies, right? Also essential to use the data, right? The comptroller's office is the hub of all financial data in the state. So making sure that we are, I want to hire an equity officer in the comptroller's office to really mine the data and to follow the money and see how we are spending money on MBEs or when we're not. And where we are not, go to those agencies and say, you guys are really, 
you know, what's the problem? Like, let's do a better job. How can we make sure that we're reaching out and opening up doors? So there has to be, you know, consequences. And then finally, I'd say something that sometimes happens is a contractor will come in with an MBE sub to get the bid, and oh, guess what? Three weeks later, replace that sub. Right. Not okay. And there's got to be consequences for that, right? And we can't, the BPW can't just find that out at the end of the contract. They have to find it out right when it happens. And so there has to be, um, you know, more of a, a way on using technology to bring that more up to date and have check-ins throughout the process um, rather than just a, a, a completion at the end. And I've actually represented um, blind-owned businesses, small blind-owned businesses around the country um, uh, doing federal and state procurements. And so I've learned a lot about how sometimes federal and state agencies, you know, they go with the big guy because they underbid, but then look at that, three years later, you pull all the contract changes and there's change order after change order after change order. So the big guy ended up being more expensive than the blind-owned business, uh, you know, that was local would have been after all. So I think there's a lot, there's a lot that we can do from the comptroller's office. And um, a lot of it's about modernizing, reaching out in communities, ending MBE waivers, um, and really using technology to drill down. Wow, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, you dropped some jewels and gems there because uh, that was very informative. I really appreciate that. So let's talk a little bit about the rainy day fund, a little <laughs> bit about that. We had a surplus about, we had a surplus. Seven and a half billion. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Um, how do we, I mean, how can you keep that up and keep us on this right path going forward with that? Because I know we had that and that helped out with during the pandemic immensely. And I remember the comptroller now was like, we have money, we have lots of money. Yeah. And the governor finally came and used that money. Yeah. How can we keep that up? And the million dollar question is, where does that money, where did, how did they get that surplus? Where does that, I mean, I'm sure, what's, this, what's behind the curtain? Because people really don't know. They're like, where's all this money coming from? It's our taxes. Right. I so, mean, yeah, I, look, our, so also in the comptroller's <laughs> office is the Bureau of Revenue Estimates, uh -huh. which estimates every year how much money we actually have coming in so that we know how much money we can spend. Um, and I mean, I, you know, it's, it is, it, I, when the pandemic first hit, everybody batting down the hatches, oh my gosh, there's not going to be any money, we're going to have to spend all our money out of the rainy day fund, cut everything. But it's turned out to, you know, this is really, really a K-shaped recovery. If any of you, under, you know, have heard that, it's where people who are doing well in the stock market, they're doing way better. People who weren't doing that great, who don't have their wealth in the stock market, they're doing worse. Um, and, you know, that's a real dilemma and a challenge. And so the rainy day fund is important and it's statutorily required. We have to keep a certain percentage of our budget in the rainy day fund every year to make sure that we do have money if something bad happens. But it's also important that we spend when we need to spend, right? Because that helps make sure that our economy doesn't contract. It helps make sure that people who need some of the programs that we run in the state, um, who are relying on the earned income tax credit um, to grow and be bigger, who are relying on childcare, um, and we need additional money for childcare, that they have that. Our schools were really hurting during the pandemic. They spent more to bring in all this PPE um, and you know all the work that they do, giving out laptops and more. We needed to make sure that we were supporting our schools, right? So there, there, when there is a need, we need to have the money there to spend, and we need to spend it. Um, and you know, this year, we passed a huge budget and a huge capital budget 
that will, uh, is totally balanced. We have plenty in our rainy day fund, um, but we're gonna do those things that we need to do. Investing in childcare so people can get to work, right? Investing in public schools so that kids are ready to learn, right? Investing in our public transit. Last year, um, I passed the largest with Senator Cory McRae. Yes. You're right. We yes. passed a bill called the Transit Safety and Investment Act, the largest mandated funding of MTA in MTA history because MTA just simply isn't serving Marylanders, right? It, there just needs to be, I mean, they want to, but they didn't have the resources. They have been starved. Um, they need new buses, they need new equipment, the operators need more too. So, you know, there's a lot to do. We need to spend that money to grow our economy um, and to maintain, um, you know, and to invest for the future. So I always have to ask this question because I talk to everybody, and everybody makes these promises and whatnot. Do you honestly see the red line ever coming back again? I mean, I always remember the Jane Miller investigation report when she said from West Baltimore to get the, to Amazon was a two hour bus ride yep. to get to work. Now to me, for us, and I'm, I'm gonna go off the cuff a little bit there, for a city that wants the World Cup, <laughs> how can we say we want the World Cup if we can't get people across the city <laughs> from two hours to get to the jobs. And we want to bring something in that we can't even supply our own people that live here. Yeah. So I kind of have a little issue with that. Yeah. But what are your thoughts on that? I mean, the red line, I mean, I, non-disclosure, I mean, I did work for the red line, so I, I wouldn't say that. And I know it was a lot of tears and tears that day when it went shut down because federal government never gets that much money to anybody. No. And I remember when it got shut down, that was my first real taste of government. Elections matter. We'll get that. That'll be, that'll be the last question. We'll talk about that. But yeah. So, what do you I mean? Do you think the red line? For those who don't know, red line was supposed to go east to west and help get people connect from Baltimore, east to west Baltimore, and then you can connect through Charles Center and you get up to knowing some bills and back and forth. So it's been a great thing. Most cities have subways or trolleys. We don't have anything here. So well, I'll let you go. Yeah. Well, we do have one subway line in the light rail, uh, but uh, yes. Yep. <laughs> no, so um, if you'll allow me to do one quick story. Good, um, my When I first moved to Baltimore, um, I had finished law school um, and then I was coming for a clerkship and I lived, my husband and I moved to Fells Point. Um, I figured I would take the bus to work every day. I did my homework, figured out it was the number 10 bus that I needed right at Eastern and Wolf. Um, and so I went and stand, stood and to catch the number 10 bus to work. Um, and guess what? didn't come. <laughs> and so I ran home and asked my husband to drive me to work um, and so I could be on time. And, you know, I, the number 10 was sort of notoriously unreliable, um, but I ended up sort of giving up on public transit and walking um, to work usually, frankly, and I was really disappointed um, because I thought, you know, that I would take transit. I had taken transit when I lived in DC, when I lived in Austin, like in other places. Austin has a tiny, tiny little bus that I took around. Um, so I was really disappointed. And for me, it was disappointing, right? But for the one third of Baltimoreans who don't have access to a car, it's not disappointing when the bus doesn't show up, right? It's actually devastating. Um, and it is to their employers too, who then don't have access to a reliable workforce, right? Um, so I actually got really involved in the red line. 
Um, and I was on our stationary advisory committee, and then I joined, uh, I was appointed to the red line, the citywide red line advisory council, the city, the citizens coordinating council or something it was called. Um, so I went to meetings all over the city um, about the red line to take public feedback and then to give MTA our feedback. Um, and it was an incredibly eye-opening process. Um, so I ran, when I ran in 2014 for state delegate, I ran as an unabashedly pro-redline candidate um, in a district that was not always very pro-redline. Um, oh, but I, know. I oh, was I still know. the top vote getter. So look at, you know. Um, and when the red line was cut, I was devastated. I mean, I had worked, spent, you know, so much of my life, as had you, on it. So do I believe the red line can come back? Yes. Um, but we need federal money, right? When Hogan sent back that $900 million, which no governor in the history of this transit program had ever done before, no governor in America had sent back money to the federal government. Our money is now in Colorado nine, or something. $900 million. $900 million that could have been invested in Baltimore. Um, and so yes, we can, I think it can, but we have to get that federal money because we cannot do it on our own. And we also can't wait. Like one of the challenges I think was that for a long time there was no investment in transit because everything was focused on the red line, mm -hmm. right? We need to be both and, not either or. So we have to build a better bus system. We have to build a better, a better light rail system. We have to improve mark, right? We need to do all of this. Mm -hmm. And we also have to work on expanding, uh, expanding our transit availability and build the red line, right? So. One of the things that I'm interested in is I think we should have a mark station at the Bayview at Bayview, right? There's a, there's space there. We could run the mark there. It would provide some east-west lines. We also, we passed a bill last year to turn our bus fleet into electric vehicles, right? Which will make them quieter and clean our air throughout the city and the region to make sure we have cleaner vehicles. So there's a lot of work that we need to do um, for MTA. So yes to the red line and also we need to do more. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, I'm going to ask, you know, <clears throat> people are listening, and this is the time you can talk to the people. Why should they vote for you for the next Maryland State Controller? Why, why would they want to vote for you? What, this is your show. <laughs> well, thanks for that. No, look, I think we are facing a critical juncture here in the state of Maryland, right? We have some of we have some of the most prosperous communities in the nation in Maryland, um, but we also have far too many who have been left behind um, because of disinvestment, racial discrimination, um, both or more, right? This is our chance, right? It, this is our opportunity really to turn the challenge of the past few years into opportunity to really learn from what we've been through um, and to seize the federal money that's coming in and the state dollars, our surpluses that we're having and ensure that we're putting it to work for all of us in an, an equitable and inclusive way, not just for today, right, but for years from now. So in the next four years, we really have the opportunity to make Maryland look better for the next 40. And I'm running because I have been able to, to work in my communities, right? Bringing in new assets, like when I brought World Central Kitchen in, when the pandemic hit and we fed thousands of people around the city, helped start CDCs, I've been on the ground, building coalitions. I've been a leader in the General Assembly, right? Building coalitions to help end the digital divide and bring affordable broadband internet to people around the state 
to end uh, gun violence and build the Maryland Violence Intervention and Prevention Coalition. Um, we've done work on public schools. I've been a leader on passing the blueprint for Maryland's future to create equitable funding. I get things done, right? I show up and I get things done. And we don't have time to waste. We have to get it right now. And that is why Speaker Jones is supporting me, Jamie Raskin supporting me, basically every elected Democrat uh, in the House and Senate from Baltimore City is, in, is supporting me, um, why, you know, why Steny Hoyer, why Johnny O, what, because I show up, I listen, I build coalitions, and then we get things done together. And so I really hope I can earn all of your support. Um, this is a big job, this is a big moment with big responsibilities, but I have bold ideas and the ability to get things done. So I'm really excited to go to the comptroller's office and make sure that we rise to meet this moment in Maryland. And I, I can't leave this place without asking the question. The last, the comptroller presently was a very brewery friendly. Yeah. Okay. What's your stance on just brewery, breweries in the state and whatnot? Yeah. I, I have no. to ask the question. <laughs> Well, uh, I'll start it this way. I did my kickoff fundraiser for uh, my comptroller run at a woman-owned brewery in my district, yep. Checker Spot Checker Brewery. Um, and I have loved, uh, yes, yes, go Judy. She's great. Yep. And um, so I'm a big fan of our breweries, also our distilleries, yes. our wineries. You know, not only are they creating jobs um, and using agriculture in a really important way, this is value-added agriculture, um, but they're also really important for building community, right? I mean, look at what you have tonight here at Union Collective, right? You know, over 100 people on a beautiful spring night out on the deck talking, enjoying one another. Um, this great space that we have here that we're in right now, right? I mean, it's a really, they're important assets to communities in addition to creating uh, good jobs and using agriculture in a new, um, I guess not new, it's the oldest thing there is, right? Hops <laughs> and beer, um, but in an important way. So absolutely excited to work with our breweries, to work with our distilleries, the whole value-added agriculture chain um, to make sure that we are growing them, supporting them here in the state of Maryland. And I definitely, definitely now I'm going to look for these mysterious 12 uh, places that field, <laughs> offices. field offices that I've never <laughs> heard of and never seen in the state of Maryland. So that's something I'm going to hold you to that because I'm, I, <laughs> I'm very heavily in the community and I'm sure community, community managers would love to know a little bit more about that and how, you know, hey, I just started LLC. Oh, the last thing, last thing for a $300 tax on a business, small business. Isn't that, you guys were talking about that? Was it the $300? Was that to? The, for the waive the fee? Oh yes, it was to waive uh, the filing fee the for filing online. Fee, yes, yes if you file going, online. Yeah, what's going on with that? I, it's a great idea. We didn't pass it. We it makes a ton of sense. I mean, what we need to do is really streamline how we collect revenue from small businesses, um, and we want to move everybody to filing online. Um, we want to make it easier to file taxes online, right? If you're a small business owner, you know you have to have two separate accounts right now, business owner account, individual account. Yep. We want to like, make it a lot easier. Um, so we need to bring in new technology to the comptroller's office. And so I'm excited to modernize and, and streamline and just make it easier to do business in the state of Maryland. I'm not gonna lie, $300 hurts my pocket for my little small yeah. business. But, yeah, of course. Uh, if they could take that away, that put money, more money back in the well, economy. And I will say, you know, 
we want to make it easier for businesses to start in Maryland and stay in Maryland right. and to spend less money on tax administration and put that money into growing their business and creating jobs, yes. right? And so I'm excited, um, you know, as an, if I'm the next comptroller to really work with our businesses and our small startups and our small businesses in Maryland to make sure that we are targeting those barriers and eliminating them. I will say, um, uh, actually I was with a brewer and she said to me, um, you know, it takes me 15 minutes to fill out my excise tax forms every month um, for the federal government. It takes me two hours to do my state excise tax forms yeah. every month, right? That's, I mean, there's no reason for that. So we've got to streamline. All right. Yep. Are there any questions from anybody in the audience? Anybody want to ask a question? Go ahead. <laughs> Sure, the question is about taxpayer rights. So one of the things that I'd like to see, well, I'll give you two things. Um, so first is people need to know uh, what they owe <laughs> and they need to be able to rely on that. We are one of the few states right now that doesn't do something called issue private letter rulings. Um, the IRS does this, almost every state in America does this, and what that means is that if you're a business or a family with a complicated tax situation, right now you can't write to the comptroller's office, to the tax administrator and say, hey, here's my fact situation, can you tell me, you know, how, what applies to me and how it applies so I can figure out what I owe? You can't get that answer right now from the comptroller's office. So you have to go pay a tax attorney to do it. And then if the tax attorney gets it wrong, the comptroller can come after you and say, hey, you were wrong, even though we wouldn't tell you, you're still wrong and we're gonna come after you for money, right? Um, but the IRS and any other state will tell you. So this year, um, I worked with Senator Katie Fry Hester um, and, and the Maryland Association of CPAs, as well as the comptroller's office to pass legislation to create the private letter ruling process in Maryland, right? To really provide more transparency to taxpayers about what they owe, right? Um, and to make it easier. So that's number one, is we've got to make sure that people know what they owe so they don't have an excuse not to pay, right? Number two, we don't have a taxpayer advocate office in the state of Maryland. Uh, DC has one, the federal government has one. Actually, I spoke to the very first national taxpayer advocate who helped create the office uh, a couple months ago about how important this kind of office is in any tax administrator's office. Many states around the country now have them. The Taxpayer Advocate Office is the office that when you have a tax situation that you think the comptroller's gotten something wrong or you think there's an issue or they're coming after you for something that you think you did correctly, you have a place to go, right? You can say, hey, this is wrong, this is what I did, I think I'm right, can you help me work through this situation, right? Having somebody who will be with you to walk you through all of that situation um, and will be your advocate, right, to the comptroller's office. So that's the other thing that I'm excited to create within the comptroller's office is the office of the taxpayer advocate. Um, and I have a lot more ideas on my website on tax administration um, generally and, and all of this from supporting small businesses to how I can be a climate comptroller to you know, working with our seniors and older Marylanders to support them as they grow uh, older so that they can retire and, and really thrive here till the end. BrookLearman.com. I hope you'll check out my website and review some of my policies and look at my little cartoon on what is a comptroller. <laughs> so yes, like thanks. Any other questions?
Yep. Yeah, no, and they're great. And it's an exciting model that I think we need to, I mean, again, it's about streamlining, right? It's about making it easier for employee-owned businesses first to become employee-owned because the process can be a little bit arduous from what I've heard, um, but also to keep that money, right? And to keep it so that they can then put it back into their business and grow and invest. And so I think it's really all about just making sure that the comptroller is an advocate for these businesses, um, that the field office, uh, the, Aaron, I'm, I'm uh, wherever they are located, is reaching is an, <laughs> is it is also and is also an advocate for them and a resource for them, and also frankly letting businesses know that that's an option, right? If you are a business in Salisbury and you're trying to figure out you know the way that you want to grow or how you want to change. Um, maybe the comptroller's office comes out to a Main Street festival you're at and has information on, you know, growing your employee-owned business. And you're like, oh, I didn't even know that was an option. And now you do, right? So I think the comptroller's office can be, um, can really be a resource for a lot of businesses as well. So, thanks. Go ahead. The Board of Public Works, yep, BPW. Yeah, no, I have not endorsed. Um, I'm staying out of it. I'm letting the guys figure it out. <laughs> there are a lot of great candidates. I'm excited to watch them. It's been great to see them stump on the trail. I know some of their stump speeches by heart. They know some of my, you know, hopefully, I think some of them probably know my stump speech by heart. Um, so it's been fun to be out there. We've got a lot of great candidates, and I'm excited to work with, um, with whoever wins. It's a great question, and I think it's really important that you both build a relationship with the treasurer and the governor, but also at the end of the day that you're standing up for the people, right? I mean, how the, how the Board of Public Works is set up, the comptroller is there for people. It's the people's advocate, right? If you think about it, because the governor usually goes along with what their agencies are asking for, right? Because the governor appointed the agency heads. The treasurer is appointed by the General Assembly. And so answers to the General Assembly. The comptroller is independently elected. The comptroller is the people's advocate on the Board of Public Works. And that is what I'm excited to be. Um, I look forward to having a great relationship with whoever the next governor is. I already know our treasurer, um, Derek Davis. He's a, he was a wonderful delegate, chairman of the Economic Matters Committee, um, a delegate from Prince George's County. Really excited to work with him. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, if I disagreed with something that either of them wanted, I got to stand up on my own and do what I think is right for the people of Maryland. And my, my question, if you do become controller, do you have a good team around you? Oh, it's essential, right? I mean, you are only as strong as the team you build, and you are known by the company you keep. Um, and so, absolutely. I think... You know, I feel really proud of the team we put together on the campaign trail. I have volunteers and, you know, every corner of the state, we're running a 24 county campaign. Um, my, my treasurer is my dear friend, Candace Dodson-Reed um, from Howard County. She's Freeman Habrowski's chief of staff. Mm. Um, my, actually, the chairman of my campaign is a really wonderful man, Alvin Lee, who lives in Cherry Hill, a longtime constituent of mine who I just has been my chairman and felt it was important for people to know that 
the people of my district, including Cherry Hill, believe in me. Um, but I have uh, been really just overwhelmed and so humbled and um, thrilled with the people who've stepped up to help. But 100%, we have to build an inclusive office, an office that is representative of the diversity of the state of Maryland, um, and an office that, where we have an open door policy, right? Where we are going out and reaching out to communities around the state and listening and hearing from them. So 100%. I'd like to thank everybody who came, we wrap up. I think every, I'd like to thank everybody who came out this evening. Um, you know, it's, I've learned a lot. I've taken a lot of mental notes, and I hope you have. Hope you've learned a lot from what State Delicates drop jewels and gems as I say on the podcast. And I, I want to leave you guys a little bit. So we met over a year ago through mutual acquaintances. And I said, let's do an interview. And we did an interview. And I said, let's do a second one next year. Not only did she help me to the fire and said, let's make it happen, <laughs> we did it again. So I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. My pleasure. I know you have a family and all whatnot, yeah, and you got to do, but coming up and talking with the people here, and I'm excited for the listeners to listen to this episode. And again, thank you so much. And um, I, I want to ask you, if you do win, we're going to have you. I, we're going to win. We're going to do this thing. When, okay, when, when you win, <laughs> yeah. no picks wants an exclusive. Oh, you got it. We want, you the, got ex- it. We want the exclusive <laughs> before we even go there. So, but you thank got you. It. Yeah. Got to ask that. We got to remind everybody, though, election day is July 19th, right? You can request a mail-in ballot at elections.maryland.gov. Early voting starts on July 7th. This is an important primary for the state of Maryland, a really important primary. And believe it or not, not everybody knows that they're going to be voting for a new comptroller. Um, So I hope that you will, if you're listening to this or for those here tonight, I hope you'll go home. Please check out my website. Please share it with your friends, neighbors, families. Check out our social media and share it um, because this is a really important office and a really great opportunity for the state of Maryland to set itself on a course um, where we're really building a better Maryland for every person. So thanks so much for having me, Aaron. Thank you, folks. Have a good night. Good night. No Picks After Dark podcast is fueled by Zeke's Coffee. Have you tried their coffee yet? I'm telling you, there's something different about it. Maybe it's because they roast their beans in a fluid coffee roaster, which provides the most accurate roasting temperatures and made with love. You will just have to check it out for yourself and try their delicious food while you're at it. Open now for curbside service, online ordering, carry out, and they also do wholesale. Visit Zeke's Coffee at 4719 Hartford Road, open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Sunday, 8 to 5 p.m. Kitchen closes at 3 p.m., or visit Zeke'sCoffee.com, and you too can be fueled by Zeke's.